Welcome to the State of Fem Art Podcast, a space where we drive conversations around what it means to be woman creatively and artistically in today's industry. A place where women from various walks of life share their experiences, triumphs, and obstacles as they navigate the state of the world and their creativity. This is a safe space. One where women are celebrated for being fearlessly and unapologetically them. It is a space of belonging for those who feel their artistic and creative endeavors have gone unseen, unheard, or unsupported. But here you will also get resources and tools to help you reach your next level. We'll laugh together, cry together, but more importantly, we'll grow together. I am Tamia Faulkner, and this is The State of Fem Art. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of The State of Fem Art. I am super pumped. I know I'm always super pumped and super excited, but I'm really excited today because I went to an event hosted by Black Women Photographers, and there was just this fire starter on the panel. I noticed her when I first came in the room, but some of the answers that she gave during the panel, I said, you know what? I have to have her on the podcast. And I'm talking about none other than Miss Adrienne Ramsey. How are you? Hi, thank you. That's so funny. I love it. A fire starter. Aw, yay. <laughs> yes, a fire starter. <laughs> So can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and just what you do? I wear several hats at this point. So um, I'll start off by saying I am an independent arts curator. And what that means is that I do not uh, currently work for an art gallery or an art museum or an art space in general. But essentially, I have contracts with you know other arts art spaces as a guest curator to curate um, show temporary exhibitions for their spaces. Um, I'm also the founder and editor-in-chief of Girls Magazine, which is an online publication that is a portfolio of interviews with femme-identifying contemporary artists, curators, writers, slash scholars, and uh, art professionals about their practices and art and politics. And then I'm also director of communications for Art Into Acres, which is a art, which is an art land and conservation initiative. And lastly, I am a second year in the master's in curatorial practice in the public sphere program at USC uh, Roski School of Art and Design, and I will graduate in May. So basically, Adrian, the one who wears many hats, yes. <laughs> many, many hats, <laughs> many artistic hats at that. I want to start from the very beginning because I know, you know, like you said, you're getting ready to wrap up your MFA program. It seems like you've been on this journey for quite some time. How did you get started within art? Was it something that naturally came when you were younger? Were you artistic or was there someone who helped to inspire an interest and love of arts for you? Yeah, for sure. So I would say that I always say it's so funny that I ended up in art because 
when I was growing up, I hated going to art class. <laughs> I just had this teacher who she taught, she was there for the entirety of my uh, K through six education at my elementary school. My sister, who's two years younger than me, had the same teacher. And I feel like we both had the same experience. Um, she was just really rude and very critical about art. I always felt like she was particularly judgmental towards like the things that I would do because I would try to go outside the box and she always kind of shut me down. And, you know, I think it was around fourth grade when I realized that the projects we were doing just rotated every other year. It didn't really feel like a positive learning experience. And so I just always hated going to art class. But my mother is an artist and she always took my sister and I to museums and galleries growing up um, in, in all sorts of different states because we as a family would travel a lot. Um, so that was always very much encouraged. We would do arts and crafts when we were kids. We would have like, these paper mache parties where we would actually make Christmas ornaments with our friends. So that was really fun. But I just never really thought of art as something that I would ever be interested in. You know, and when I moved on to middle school and high school, um, it just felt like the art classes were very much just like this kind of state requirement. There wasn't much encouragement for it to go on as a career. So when I started my freshman year of college, I was at Sarah Lawrence College in New York, where I spent my first two years before transferring to USC to get my bachelor's in art history. So this is my second time at USC, actually, fight on. <laughs> but essentially, um, when I was at Sarah Lawrence College, I had a professor, Micah Pollock, who is now the director and chief curator of the John Young Museum at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, as well as um, an assistant professor there. So she at the time was running her own gallery, South First Gallery in Brooklyn, which she ran for, I think, about 18 years. Yeah. And so she was also... Um, she also wear Micah wears many hats. She was also a curator, you know, writer, scholar, academic, just everything, you know. And I, I took a class with her, which was called, you know, the Artful Science. You know, it was a history of photography course, I think from like 1835 to like 1925. So it was like a survey of early photography. And I just loved that class. I, you know, and I'd always been interested in photography. I did take it in high school and we had a dark room. So that was a really fun experience. The only fun experience I've had taking art class in my education. Um, but yeah, Micah really taught us about, you know, art history and about artists and how, you know, photography as a medium developed. And I just really admired, you know, her career as well. And that was the first time I understood what a curator was. You know, it wasn't until I was 18 years old. I'm like, oh, those are the people that create the exhibitions. Because I just never knew anything about the jobs that people had in museums. So I would say that was like my jumping off part. And I really started it, you know, in school and taking these classes and just getting super immersed in it. And, you know, my mom had always been super encouraging of me to go into art, you know, in some way. So I'm sure she was jumping up and down for joy. And then when I transferred uh, to USC, because Sarah Lawrence just wasn't really the place for me, um... I started working at the California African American Museum and, um, you know, that was, that's such a positive experience. I still talk to so many people there and that's how I really got interested in like art as a, you know, art as a career. I could see myself having this career, um, in museums and then I'll just quickly touch on my, um, kind of background with magazines. So as a child, I, I, identi I identify actually much more as like a, a writer a, a, write, a writer as I was growing up, because um, I would do a lot of creative writing. 
I also segued into journalism. I took journalism in high school. I was a part of the paper for three years. And then I actually restarted our literary magazine club because I'd always been super into magazines. I remember the first magazine subscription I had was, you know, American Girl Magazine. I still have all my magazines. I'm never selling them. They have such a special place in my heart. I was also subscribed to like Seventeen Magazine. And I was also really, and I was really interested in like, you know, the layout and super into like DIY and putting publications together. So how I put together my publication Girls was actually, so Girls was the final project, the first issue for a class I took in my senior year at USC, my last semester, um, Artist Magazines as Alternate Spaces. So there was a seminar and then a studio element of creating your own magazine. So, you know, Trump had just got in, inaugurated. There was a lot of protests happening. A lot of artists, you know, speaking up and speaking out about what they'd experienced, you know, kind of fighting back against you know, Trump and his administration and, you know, this rise of conservative, 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 ah, I'm like, ah, the rise of conser- cons- the conservative movement, um, it's kind of this newer one that we're kind of experiencing. So essentially, um, I really wanted to capture that moment. So I interviewed like eight artists, I put together the publication, I submitted it to USC's um, symposium for creative and scholarly work, I got second place in the arts category. And a lot of people really liked it. So I just have continued doing it for the past um, five, five and a half years. It's going to be six years in April since I started it. And it's just my baby. It's just my project, you know, and I love it. The layout of Girls Magazine is is really nice, really crisp and clean. I really like it. Um, can you, I, I want to go back to the curation part of things, because I think, that there are, you know, two paths. I hear people who desire to get into being a curator who have never gone to school for it. Um, They are just very, they're into the arts. They are very um, creative at their core and they have a desire to curate um, shows and exhibitions. And then you have those who go a more traditional route. What has your experience been? And do you feel that everyone who steps into um, a role as a curator or who desires to be a curator um, has to take a traditional path? Or do you feel there are other methods to step into the industry? Yeah, that that's a great question. I feel like so... For my path, yeah, I, I definitely took more of a traditional route, you know, in that, you know, I have my bachelor's in art history. I, um, you know, I'm in this master's program right now. I will say that I was was one of the, I'm probably one of the few people in my cohort that had the experience of being able to curate a show before coming into the program. I curated a show for uh, Root Division in San Francisco. It was my first show I ever curated um, called I Am, which was a huge group show kind of about the signifiers of identity and how we really, you know, identify ourselves um, as people of color, you know, especially amidst like, you know, racial stereotypes, gender stereotypes, et cetera, et cetera. So I had, so I was lucky that I was able to get that opportunity through an open call and be able to uh, come into the program, my master's program with that experience. You know, I definitely feel like that was a plus, but um, essentially, yeah, I'm before grad school, I'd interned at places I worked in museums and I think that necessarily no one, no one necessarily has to do anything per se. So I think, that it's kind of a yes and no question. Like no one has to take 
that traditional path. I think that there is a big question of do people need, you know, master's degrees or do you need a PhD? And I think that that really, you know, the amount of education you have will definitely affect, you know, your salary and what type of salary that you might qualify for. But that, but that can also be substituted with a lot of work experience. Like I know, like, for example, Cameron Shaw, who's the executive director of uh, CAM. Like, I know that Cameron has a bachelor's degree from Yale, which is, you know, obviously incredible, but she also, she does not have a master's degree versus like, there's like Micah, the professor that I uh, had, you know, and who's now the director and chief curator, she has a PhD from Princeton. So I think it just really depends on your individual path. I think that there are definitely a lot more younger people that are going into more like the academic curator, like they want to have both. Like I know a lot of people that are in PhD programs right now, like I want to eventually do a PhD. That's definitely something that I see for myself. But I think it just depends. It, it really just depends on your own situation. I don't think anyone necessarily has to do anything. I do think that going to school can definitely offer up those connections though. You know, and you are given the opportunities to curate, you know, for example, like in my program. And we also get the opportunity to work with the MFA students and help them curate their um, thesis shows. So there's definitely a lot of poss- like resume building and working opportunities that do come along with school, such as going to a master's program. But I feel like if you supplement that with work experience, then you can definitely make a path for yourself. But I think it really is important that, like I said, either go to school or really work, like work your ass off in general. But if you're not going to go to school, you're probably going to have to work, you know, a little bit harder to prove yourself because a lot of these jobs, you know, they're, they're looking for people with masters or, you know, PhDs, you know, even if you're, even if you're just ABD, you know, you haven't done your dissertation, you know, so I, I think people realistically should be mindful of that because I don't think that that's going to change anytime soon. And I also think that the like what you mentioned earlier, that the word curator, I feel like that word has just become really broad when specifically it's a job that you really have to be trained and qualified for. You know, not everyone is going to be qualified to do like that behind the scenes production work that curating really is like you're not really in the forefront you are putting other artists in the forefront and creating a narrative and telling a story yeah and I I think there's an intersection there with your passion for writing right because I think you've just always been drawn to storytelling in the sense that being in this role makes so much sense (laughs) for you um Uh, And and so I love how your path has sort of intertwined to bring you to this point. And I think, as you mentioned, the added benefit of being able to have that network through going to school and through taking the time to intern um, with some of these programs and at some of these different um, museums is, you know, worth it all, actually. Yeah, I think it's I think it is really important to get the work experience, that's for sure, and to really immerse yourself in that because, you know, and I I really do recommend this for people who are interested in going to graduate school. Like if you can, like just try and get an internship or even just shadow somebody, you know, because sometimes I see that even in my program, like some people maybe not understanding how 
budgets work or how certain things like are done, you know, or even just knowing how to speak to an artist or speaking about a work, you know, ultimately it is a professional experience and you want to make sure that you are bringing that professionalism to anything that you do for sure. Yeah. So, so let's talk about that because, you know, I think most people, the average person, especially is used to hearing the term starving artists, you know, and then you have a lot of emerging artists who are wondering, well, how can I get my work in these um, shows? And, you know, how do I really make money as an artist? And so I want to sort of talk about um, the the business aspect that there is is a side to it um, that is very, you know, business, business driven. Yeah. And so what advice would you give to artists who, one, want to have their um, artwork or photography um, in shows? And then two, you know, just understanding a bit more about... <laughs> they don't necessarily have to be a starving artist. I think I heard you mention when we um, were at the Black Women Photographers event at um, Perfect Exposure Gallery, you had mentioned how one of the artists who got the opportunity to be a part of one of the shows you curated was so shocked um, at what you compensated them for, you know, being a part of that show. And I find that that's more common than not. So help our listeners out, you know, what, what is it that they can do to get into these shows, but also what should they know um, as an artist, as far as, you know, what they should be looking for to um, when it comes to compensation or when it comes to, you know, making a living being an artist. Right. Absolutely. So those are great, great questions. So I'll, I'll answer the, the first one uh, before I get into the compensation. I think the biggest advice I can give to artists, you know, trying to get their artwork shown, you know, and kind of break into this industry is that please answer your emails. <laughs> I feel like I said this during the panel talk as well, but please, please answer your emails. The emphasis, please. <laughs> like, please, let's you know, and, and at a certain point, I, I, I can't, it can't be a thing where I'm saying like, please, for me, it's like, no, like, for real, answer your email, because I, I know a lot of people, a lot of artists who, you know, there's always and, and I'll just be really blunt, because I can't be other any other way. I hate the excuse of like, oh, well, I'm just creative. I'm not good with paperwork. I'm not good with correspondence. Well, I'll know what to tell you. Because if you're not, you're not about to get a check. Mm. Your work is not about to get shown. There are certain stipulations that are put in place to protect the work, protect the show, and also protect you. You cannot just drop off artwork at a gallery. No, there has to be a contract. You have to, so, so you can get paid if something happens, God forbid. Like if someone, you know, I, I have a, a friend, an artist friend of mine uh, who's amazing, Taravat Talapasan. She, you know, was going to have a show in Portland, Oregon, where she lives, and these thieves broke into the gallery and like stole the artwork. And thankfully everything was insured, but still like that's something that can happen. So you, you got to fill these forms to make sure if something does happen, that insurance can help you out, that you, you can get compensated in some way for the loss. You know, you know what I mean? Or if something gets broken yeah. or something gets damaged. You know what I mean? So there are, you know, protections in place, which is why 
paperwork is very important and you need, you don't know who's looking out at your work. And sometimes people are not just going to DM you on Instagram, you know, they're going to send you an email. They're going to try and see if they can get your phone number, you know? So it's also important to make sure all, if you have a website, which I feel like all artists should have a website and you do not have to pay for a domain domain. Like I've seen people even convert a website into like from like a Tumblr and they've taken Tumblr out of like the URL, you know, to maybe look a little bit more professional, even though there's nothing wrong with Tumblr. <laughs> you know what I mean? So there's always tricks and tricks and the little things, little hacks to do. But I just generally think, you know, if you want to get your work shown, you need to show a level of care. And that is being responsive and communicative. I truly hate when people are not communicative. If something is going on, you can shoot me a super quick text an email and let me know. And that is fine. I hate radio silence. I find it so disrespectful, you know, not to just to my time, but also like there's a whole team of people behind me, you know, who like own these spaces that I'm guest curating at that want to support an artist. You know what I mean? So it's just all about communication. If you not do not know how to effectively communicate in any professional setting, then you are not going to be featured. You don't even have to be an artist. You just, you just, you, your passion, your work or whatever it, it will not get featured if you are not communicative. So I feel like I have had that experience with a decent amount of artists. I definitely feel like it's a trope, you know, or a stereotype of artists that I have definitely seen come true. And I think that I would just really, really, you know, tell people to work on that because, you know, creative is not synonymous with laziness or miscommunication yes. or just not answering your emails, you know? So that's the first thing I'll say, you know, I hate yeah. that because I'm also very creative. And I answer all my emails. <laughs> I, I rarely miss one. It's important. Um, and then to answer the second question about compensation, um, I, I think to, to make sure that you are compensated, yeah, I think that that's definitely something that is a little bit, unfortunately, beyond the artist, sadly. I think that that is a larger issue that really needs to be addressed in the art world. Artists need to get paid way more. You know, I would never be in a situation where no, where none of the artists are making money. Like we need to make sure you guys are getting paid. Like I remember when we did the I am show, we actually did some things on a sliding scale and we, and that was a big show. There are actually 16 artists in that show. Oh my God. There's so many people, you know, and it's a small budget, but you know, we made sure everyone got paid and we did on a sliding scale. Also, who are the people who like are more emerging artists or like really early career artists, they got paid more. You know what I mean? Cause we had two works on loan and like those artists also understood that like, Hey, like one person had been in, you know, the Whitney biennial, you oh, know, wow. and had their work shown at MoMA PS one and they got it there, you know, Alexandra Bell, like, you know, she, she's amazing. So she's one of the people I was referring to and she was super understanding and she's doing a fellowship at Harvard right now, you know, and, and like, I don't know the state of her finances, but I'm pretty sure it's in a lot better of a position than like some of the people in, you know, my pro and my, and, um, that were just starting out. Cause there was one person who was still in college, you know what I mean? And we sure that made sure that person got paid the most. You know what I mean? So you, you can also do things on a sliding scale. You can communicate. You can you can make sure things are fair. There were a couple of people in the show who were like professors, you know, so you already have that salary in addition to you being an artist. And they understood, you know what I mean? So I think that just as, as a curator, you also have to demand that. Like, I would never be comfortable working for a space that does not pay the artists, you know, in a way that is fair. I think that that is super important. So I feel like that's a bit of a, you know, I, I, have an opinion on it, but I feel like in terms of solutions, 
unfortunately it's not necessarily up to me. I think that that's a much larger like systemic issue that needs to be addressed within the art world. But I'm definitely a proponent of fair pay and compensation for artists for sure. And I think that I, I, unfortunately I know a lot of artists that have to work two, three jobs to make it work. Like, you know, bartending or also like teaching or whatnot. And it, it's a tough world out there. So I, I would really hope that hopefully in like five to 10 years, there are m- much bigger improvements about compensating artists because I mentioned the whole like controversy uh with the Whitney Museum not paying those artists you know and not even telling them they were part of the show dear god you know that happened two years ago which I feel like just showed unfortunately that a lot of progress was not being made and hopefully that was a starting off point for a lot of people to realize like hey the Whitney is a you know it's practically a corporation you know this place got multi-millions you know in endowment or, or whatnot or in donors and you guys can't pay the artists like so yeah we clearly need to keep talking about this for sure yeah no it's it's a part of the reason that we we started this platform and just speaking about the systemic issues i think one of my frustrations has always been and i know my husband probably gets tired of hearing it every time we go to a gallery i literally i will i will count i will go and look at every single work and see how many works within that exhibition are by women artists. And unfortunately, there is a deficit, you know, and it's not just based upon the statistics that are already out there. It's not just, you know, based upon preference. I mean, these are things that are actively happening now. So what work do you feel we can do to start to move the needle forward when it comes to making sure that women artists get um, just as much visibility, um, just as much when it when it comes to like the auction house and, and even, you know, works, comparative works that are sold between male artists and um, women artists. It's just the the disparity is it's not it's noticeable yeah it's it's really noticeable and I am wondering what is it that we can actively um do especially being in the advocacy space to help to move that needle forward because I feel a part of it is of course you know educate educating because some people just don't know um and then but also providing tools and resources that help to um, activate change within the space. So what are your thoughts around um, just how we can help to move the needle forward for women artists to get both the visibility and the compensation they deserve within the art world? Absolutely. I think that it really starts at the top, you know, and it really starts with who, who is, who, who, who is helming this space? You know, like it starts at the board of directors and then to the executive director and then to the curatorial staff, like how many women do you have like in these positions of power? How many women of color do you have in these positions of power? Are you advocating for solo exhibitions or group exhibitions that highlight women and advocate for women? Are you paying, you know, your, your female, you know, senior staff, are they getting paid the same amount as the men, you know? And, and I think that that's really where it starts because if the interest is not being expressed in those settings of, you know, a board of directors meeting or, you know, the executive director or the curatorial staff, it's just not going to get done. You know what I mean? I remember actually I went and saw, you know, 
a couple years ago, there was this show that was curated between the Royal Academy of Arts in London and the Broad, a show about Jasper, you know, retrospective of Jasper John. And, you know, um, I, I liked the works, like it was all fine. There was, there was nothing, um, there was nothing wrong with it. But then even just like a couple years later, so I see another retrospective of Jasper John's work this time also done by the Philadelphia Museum of Art and the Whitney Museum. And I was like, I feel like I just literally saw John's retrospective like three years ago. And it just felt like a repeat, you know, and just even just like all the Andy Warhol shows I've seen or, you know, Jackson Pollock or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, are you guys putting in the same amount of emphasis, effort, and like advertising money. Advertising is also a huge thing. You know what I mean? Are you, you know, around, you know, on your website, on your social media, but even, you know, when you're hanging up banners around the city, that's advertising and marketing. Are you advertising what, like when you have a show about female artists, you know what I mean? So I think that it just really starts at the top and the emphasis has to be there because the truth of the matter is I respect people a lot more when they say they don't care. I hate when people try and do the fake, oh, we don't have the resources or we don't have the interest. No, you just don't give a shit. Like, let's talk about the real issue at hand. You don't care. The reason why you're not amplifying it or advocating for it is because you don't see it as a problem. You know what I mean? And this goes into a much larger conversation about, you know, like I said, who are at, who is actually like on these BO, on the BOD? Who is the director? Who's on the curatorial staff? Because if that interest is not there, the, the space is not going to put in the emphasis on it. They're not going to back it. You know what I mean? That emphasis has to be there and you just got to stand 10 toes down. You know what I mean? So I think that's the best way. I hope I answered this. <laughs> no, you definitely did. And with the passion and vigor that I feel in my heart every time I go and, and you know, see that the spaces are not necessarily reflective of supporting honestly women um within the arts always and again like you said it's from the top and then it trickles down and i think that also speaks to the importance of education and mentorship and i want to ask you what has um what role has mentorship played in your journey within the art world i hear you um i heard you drop a couple of names in the beginning um, of the podcast, speaking um, to some of the professors and, and people that you've had as a part of your journey. But what what role has mentorship played um, within your journey, but also how important do you feel it is for others who desire um, to break into the art world? I think that, yeah, mentorship is super, super important. You know, I have so many amazing mentors like my boss Haley Mellon who you know is the uh, founder of Art Into Acres she's amazing we were just texting this morning you know and also and she also participated in Girls Nine and she has you know been so kind to me and given me so much advice and really opened up a lot of doors for me and I you know really appreciate that I've definitely met a lot of people like through my magazine through my shows uh Wei Yi Chu who um loaned Alexandra Bell's piece for the I Am show where he's amazing and has introduced me to so many people. Amelia Jones, who's one of my professors, you know, at USC and also my thesis chair. I love Amelia. And, you know, also just the whole team at CAM. They've always just been so welcoming, so great. There's so many people I could name at the top of my head, but it's just like, ah, just know I love you all. But I think that mentorship is super, super important. I think that it's definitely, you know, just 
just ask questions. Like if you're in school, just ask your professors, just like pick their brains, like about their careers or, you know, how they, you know, made it in the art world or how, you know, they're still making it. You know, I think, I think it's just important to just ask questions, you know, and just always show the interest. And if you're presented with an opportunity to learn and grow, even if like, you know, just take that opportunity, you know, cause that just can help so much. Here's the reality of life. It's also about who, you know, that's a fact. It's a fact of life. So like build up those connections, but also be always be genuine with it. You know what I mean? You never just want to network to network. It's so beautiful when you're able to really cultivate like a friendship or a partnership with someone, you know, and just like lower those guards because people, you know, people are ultimately people. Yeah. And people will help out who they feel has like a genuine connection to them. Not someone who's just trying to move on up. You know what I mean? So that's, that's what I'll say about mentorship. I think it's super important and super vital, especially to my career for sure. Yeah. And speaking of connection and, and your approach to curation, do you feel when you're curating a show and, and selecting works that you have to have a personal connection to what's being um, submitted or presented for review or is there an, a different approach that you take um, when curating shows? Well, I have to like the work. <laughs> that's, 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 just, that's the first base. You're like, let's, let's get that out the gate first. I, I have to actually like it. Yeah, like if I don't like it, like, you know, and, and I like to, you know, in all seriousness, I, I do like to, I do like a thorough review before I ask someone to be a part of the show. Like I look at the portfolio, you know, I look at the website, you know, I try and have a conversation with them first to see if this is going to work. Cause I just don't want to throw anyone in there. I really want to make sure it flows a lot. And I spoke about this during the black women photographers panel. You know, I have worked with, you know, my friends or, you know, put my friends in a show, you know, and that's, but, but it's also, it's not all my friends. <laughs> it's, you know, it's people that I also like, I, I see how they work. We communicate well with one another. And I feel like their work can really amplify the show. And even if I don't know you, I want to reach out and cultivate a relationship with you because every I, you know, work that I ultimately pick. Yes, I like it. You know, I have to like it. Um, do I feel a personal connection with it? Yeah, I, I guess you could say that. It, it, but essentially, it has to make me feel something. Like, do I feel that this work um, works well with the narrative of whatever show I'm trying to curate? You know, does it fit the vibe? Like, how do all these works, you know, how do they work in presentation with one another in conjunction with one another. So it just essentially has to fit the mold of the story that I'm trying to tell. And yeah, I just have to, you know, I got to figure out if I can work with you. You know what I mean? Cause there's some people I've had to like, I, like, you know, remove from a show or cause, cause the relationship isn't there. Like I realized, or, I've, or we've switched out works and I'm like, eh, do we maybe have something else like that would maybe fit the theme better. So I think that it's all, you know, it's, it's all a journey, you know, when you're curating, a show. But I think just as, as long as I like the work and there's a level of respect and communication there, then, you know, I'm always willing to move forward. So let me ask you this question. Typically when works are not selected or there's something that comes up that may be a better fit for the show, do you provide any feedback or is it just like a, oh, we're going to pass on this for now because it's not a great fit? I mean, t uh, yeah. So typically, um, so I don't like really do open calls. I typically invite an artist uh, first and I, and you know, first I have to see if the work is even available, you know? Um, so usually that hasn't, 
that that first part hasn't come up like we're gonna pass on this um because because I'm not doing an open call um but then in terms of like switching stuff out like yeah I'll, I'll give an example so for the I am show uh Mark Harris who's a great friend of mine who's also going to be in another show I'm doing Rabbit Hole at Berkeley Art Center so we originally had some pieces of his that were like uh, kind of like photo collages and they had been made back in 2017. But then he was uploading some works, you know, on his Instagram. And I was like, uh, like that were newer works from, you know, 2021. So that's when the show was in summer 2021. And I was like, wait, I think this will actually fit the theme a little bit better. And this is, these, these works are really current. This is what you've been working on. So I feel like this is a little bit of a better reflection of where your practice is at with the paintings. So I just asked him if we could switch it out. And he was like, yeah, for sure. You know, and we did that a month before the show. Um, that was kind of a little bit close, but um, it, it worked out in that way. Cause, cause it felt very, it felt very organic. You know what I mean? And and yeah, there was another artist for that show. We switched something out and it, like, it, it was, a, it was, it was an easy conversation. So I never really thought about it that much. We just talked about it or, or sometimes there was another work I wanted to switch out for another artist, but that work wasn't available. And I'm glad we ultimately didn't, you know, switch it out. Cause I was like, no, this actually fits a lot better. So I think just, it, it's just a conversation. You know, I've, I've never had an issue with it so far. So, uh, so yeah. Yeah, I think that does make the um, process different when it's a close call. But I'm wondering for those who, you know, have been submitting to various shows or hoping to get selected, wondering how much um, constructive criticism helps them to fine tune um, their approach or even maybe their artist statement or the things that they consider when submitting for a uh, for a show. So I'll answer this more generally because I have not, you know, necessarily been on a jury, but I guess I could say this in terms of like my curatorial program, because we were going through, you know, actually in that sense, that was kind of a juried process in that we ourselves as students were presenting artists and going through them and seeing the works that were kind of like, like each person presented like two to three artists that they felt would be good for our show, which is called We Are Close in Distance. Um, it's closing actually tomorrow. It's a beautiful show. But essentially back in, you know, last semester, um, early in the winter, yeah, we each had two to three artists that we presented along with um, a works that we felt might work for the show. And we just really worked our way down the list. And I think it's just, it's never personal. It's just essentially what we feel like would be the best fit you know, for what we're trying to show. And I think that in terms of constructive criticism, I, I think that everyone should be open to constructive criticism. I'm, you know, also open to it. I'm not absolved from it. But um, essentially, yeah, also like in terms of like an artist statement, I think just like be really current where, where your practice is at that moment. It's so like I said, like sometimes I look at an artist's website and I'm like, oh, this hasn't been updated in like a couple of years. And then I look at their Instagram and I'm like, oh, this feels like a little different from what is being reflected on your website. So I think always make sure that all your platforms are very current. Um, and that, you know, if your if your practice is interdisciplinary or if it is kind of just like maybe like a straight up painting practice, just be really um direct and open about what your practice entails that's like that's the best advice I can give I'm just I, I hope I'm answering the question correctly because I've technically never juried so I don't I, so I, I don't really know how helpful this would be but I think that that would be my best advice as someone who is not officially juried but yeah has like witnessed the selection process also never take it personally 
because it's not personal. It's it's just professional. It doesn't mean that you're a, if you don't get selected for something, it does not mean you are a bad artist or that you have a bad practice. It just means that your work doesn't fit in for that particular show and that grouping of artists. So I would just say never, you know, and it can be hard. It can be hard. You know, I'm not saying like you can't be in your feelings, like, but be in your feelings for like a day, <laughs> pat yourself off and then just keep it pushing. Cause, cause that's just life. Absolutely. And, and so with that being said, are there any art shows that you have coming up or anything that you're currently curating that we can look forward to? Oh yeah. Whew. I am too busy. <laughs> oh God. So, uh, Basically, um, I am, yeah, I, I mentioned this a little bit, working on a show called Rabbit Hole. It's going to be at the Berkeley Arts Center in the Bay Area in uh, from August 12th to September 23rd, 2023. So it's a little bit away, but I've been working on the show for like two years, actually. So uh, that features six artists, and they're going to be commissioning all new works about space and what does the concept of space mean to them. So I'm super excited about that. And then in winter 2024, I don't have the exact dates for that yet, uh, but, but I will be curating a show for Root Division again, that's in San Francisco. Um, that That's going to be a show featuring all Black artists who will be looking at uh, concepts and theories of Black utopia, Afrofuturism, etc. So I'm super excited about that. I'm also working on another issue of my magazine, uh, Girls 16 in Focus. So that is featuring... Um, them identifying photographers and image makers. Uh, right, I'm still doing interviews, but right now I've done interviews with Brittany Rose Bradley, who's an amazing photographer. Uh, who uses the wet plate uh, collidian process for her practice. Uh, she participated in the I Am show. She's great. I love her. Uh, Star Mon- Montana, who is um, an amazing photographer who focuses a lot on like street life and landscapes and the family. And um, Star is amazing. Graduated from USC's uh, MFA in art program and the, in 2019. And then also Casey Kaufman, who graduated from USC's MFA in art program in 2020. And she does a lot of work surrounding you know images and uh, pop culture, mass culture, and uh, Casey's great. So uh, they're the ones I've done interviews with. I'm still, I'm going to be doing it probably like one or two more people after, but that issue is going to be coming out in January. Uh, and then I'm also working on two thesis shows with two of the MFAs from USC, Kimberly Sweet. I love Kim. She's great. And then I'm going to be working with Michonne Sanders. Uh, Michonne also participated in the 14th issue of Girls, uh, Black Girl Magic. Michonne is just, you know, incredible. So I'm super excited to be working with them. And yeah, I'm also just looking to probably starting in 2024, like expand my magazine into more of like a company for like art historical research and publications. And uh, yeah, so that's, <laughs> that's what I'm working on. I actually, um, I'm glad to be winding down a bit with school. I actually submitted my thesis last night. Uh, so I did that actually early. I did the accelerated track. So that thesis looks at uh uh, black run art spaces in LA and how they use curation to take an activist stance. So I was looking at Brockman gallery. Yeah. yeah. Brockman gallery, which was an operation from 1967 to 1989 uh, in Lamert park. Actually the building that art and practice is in is where Brockman gallery used to be. 
and it was um, owned and operated by Alonzo and Dale Davis, who are uh, two amazing brothers. They're both still alive. I had the wonderful opportunity to talk with them. And also, you know, the Underground Museum, which sadly closed uh, back in March. Um, I don't know if they're coming back, but I, I hope they do eventually. I love their space. Just kind of tracing a historical thorough line. So I actually just submitted that last night. <laughs> That's something I finally finished up. I was like, yay, thank God. So I really wanted to just do that early deadline just because I was like, I can do it let me do it. So I just wrote like all summer. Um, and so I'm happy that I was able to do that. So yeah, that's just what I've been working on. I feel like I just listed 10 different things I'm doing. I just, I don't know how to not work. Like I just love to work. It's fun. So basically everyone, we are in 2022 and I'm already in 2024. Yeah, I'm kind of booked up. So what Adrian is saying. Yeah, like everyone's 2022. I'm like, I'm kind of booked up through 20, early 2024. Like, uh, it's kind of crazy when when you say it like that. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm like booked up for the next like year and a half. <laughs> I think that's that's goals. We always want to be be thinking ahead, but hopefully all as well. You're balancing your own well being also. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. I definitely take the time to like. I promise. I do relax. I do like go to museums. Like you know, just, just for fun to have, you know, a day off. I go out to lunch with my friends. I do go on vacation. I'm not always working. I promise I take time for myself. I get, you know, six to eight hours of sleep a night. It's just all about managing your things, yeah. like just managing it. And it's, it's all possible. It is. Well, it seems like you are managing well. Adrian. how can our listeners get in touch with you, follow you and even read Girl Magazine? Yeah, of course. Um, so essentially, if people want to get in touch with me, best way is to just, uh, you can check out my Instagram. I'm super active on there. It's uh, at a Ramsey uh, 125. And then um, the link for girls. So girls does not have like an individual website or social media. I've, I've kind of gone back and forth as to whether I want to do that. Um, but I always say girls is like an artist project, like a uh, like like a, a creative platform for storytelling. So the website, the the like like it doesn't have a specific website domain, but I do have an open profile on issue uh, where I do you know list uh, where all the issues are uploaded for people to check it out. Um, am I able to like give you that link and it can maybe be included in like the yeah description for this? Yeah, I'll pro- I'll provide that for you. If people want to check it out. Um, but yeah, and 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 on on girls on the public profile page, my email is listed if people do want to get in touch with me. But yeah, best way would be you know Instagram and then also just checking out uh, Girls Magazine because I upload a lot of information about both girls and the shows that that I'm doing. Yeah. Awesome. Well, you guys make sure that you check out Girls Magazine. We will share that link with you all. Adrian, it was such a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the State of Film Art podcast. You can catch new episodes bi-weekly on Thursdays and make sure that you connect with us by following us on Instagram at SoFilmArt. And you can also visit our website and listen to past episodes at sofimart.com.